Anyway, I'm excited to uh, pick it back up this morning, and we are back in 1 John. And uh, I want to start off by talking about a certain coach named Vince Lombardi. In 1961, uh, 38 members of the Green Bay Packers got together to meet with their new coach, in which he held up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. Very famous. And, you know, he got into this kind of fundamentals kind of training that happened, where he just pushed the fundamentals. Uh, And this led the Green Bay Packers to win the NFL championship. Now, I bring him up, very familiar story, because I'm convinced that the Apostle John is the Lombardi of the New Testament. You know, he gives us these simple statements in order to get his readers to focus on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. For example, the section that we're talking about this morning, it starts off with this in 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him. To be a Christian, as simple and as fundamental as you can get it, is to abide in Jesus, which means that you spend every day, moment by moment, connecting with Jesus, walking with Jesus, checking in with Jesus, the one who said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So last week, we looked at the great hope that comes from abiding in Jesus. Josh had this amazing text, uh, 1 John 2, 28-3-3, which has this giant, exciting crescendo. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And to walk with Jesus day by day introduces this incredible hope, this incredible promise. It's to realize that you are God's beloved child right now, every day. I mean, that's, you know, behold, behold, John's just like enraptured. We are God's children. And and then to live with this amazing promise that we will one day be dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating with life and joy and filled with wisdom and love, a bright, amazing stainless mirror reflecting back God's own moral brilliance. That is a great promise, and Josh brought it home last week so well. The promise of abiding in Christ. Well, this week, we look not at the promise of abiding in Christ, but the cost of not abiding in Christ. The Apostle John is a realist, and he knows just because that possibility is there, there's no guarantee that it's going to happen. John knows that life is filled with temptations and distractions, and John is writing his letter in no small part to Christians Uh, who were being introduced to a different path, namely a path that said that sin is no big deal. So in verses 4 to 10, John sets in stark contrast this glorious future with the cost of getting sidetracked from abiding in Christ, walking with Christ day by day. In other words, John wants to instill in his readers the great danger of sin. The great danger of sin. Now, this is my second sermon uh, in the First John series, and Josh is responsible for assigning the text, and the last sermon he gave me was also on sin. So maybe it's, maybe it's fair to ask, John, Josh, are you trying to tell me something? I don't... Yes. <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't give me the text on the Antichrist, okay? <laughs> something really interesting is happening in this text, and it was beautifully read, and I really enjoyed the way that Patty read it, but something very interesting, and I want to point it out 
what, how cool this is. You know, John is, he's not, an, 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 uh, he's not a, an Occidental thinker. He's an Oriental thinker. He's not from the West. He's from the East. And so the way he organizes his thinking is very different than the way we might do it. First uh, John 3, 4 to 7, look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Now look at verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now look at 8b. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now look at 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him or known him. And this then lines up with verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then finally, the last uh, a pair, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Pairs with verse 10. By this it is evident who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So I want to point that out because you're going to see a color-coded sections of scripture, and now you'll know that I'm matching these, not accidentally, but I really believe that John has a certain kind of system he's going through here. But, of course, today we're going to be talking about sin. And when you talk about sin, you cannot assume that people understand that word. You know, sin has fallen on hard times. I mean, to put it quite simply, sin for the modern ear is just an odd word. Um, It's problematic outside the church where the Bible's understanding of morality is oftentimes spun as being regressive and backwards. But even in the church... Sin has no longer become a part of our vocabulary. It's a term that we don't really use. We can talk about our brokenness, or we can easily acknowledge that we're still understanding relational dynamics, or we're quick to acknowledge that I have my miscalculations now and then. God, have mercy on me, a miscalculator. (laughs) Sin is not in our vocabulary. Now, sin is a word that's out there. It's out there in our dessert menus. You've got your chocolate sin pie. You've got your sinful creamy cheesecake. You've got your sinful banana pudding. And look, by my lights, banana pudding is always sinful. I do not like banana pudding. But can you see what's happening here? Do you see the trivialization that's taking place? See, relegating something as profound as the Bible's incredible idea of sin to a confection or a cookie or a cake is to trivialize it and therefore to neutralize it and therefore to make it morally vacuous. But in the midst of this leaving sin to just something trivial, strangely, our culture in North America is becoming anything but morally vacuous. We have a culture now that is filled with moral indignation. And increasingly on the left and the right, we have the moral rhetoric upped where our opposition is seen not simply as someone who has a different view than us, but as a monster that needs to be destroyed. So I find it interesting that the word sin has lost parlance, and at the same time, our public life has become filled with this kind of moral outrage. And this loss of sin has not only fragilized our public life, but it has impoverished us from the Bible's profound assessment of the human condition. As John is going to show, only when we have a proper diagnosis can we find hope and healing. Let me say that one more time. For John, the ultimate hope for human evil is not found in a political platform. It's not found 
through studying in a psychology department, but it's found, and here I'm quoting from the creed, before the one whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. In other words, hope is ultimately found in understanding sin. This is a football. So what is sin? What is sin? Well, John here starts off telling us what sin is. Everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So he's using two different words and he's connecting them. Everyone who, practi- everyone who makes a practice of sinning, hamartia, that little thing above the alf, alf makes it huh, hamartia, also practices lawlessness, anomia, okay? Namas from we get our word law. So what is John doing here? Well, John is saying that uh, sinning here, hamartia, is anomia. Now, the word sinning here uh, means to fail, means to miss a goal, all right? But it's not just, uh, just a, a moral concept. It's actually a religious concept, okay? So uh, the goal in question is of being uh, who God intended us to be. God made us in his image to reflect God's goodness and his kindness and his justice and his beauty and his love, etc., etc. So, sin is to miss the mark of who God made us to be. And of course, there are any number of reasons why we might miss a mark. A miscalculation. I mean, the circumstances are really difficult. And so, John here very intentionally connects hamartia with anomia, lawlessness, to let it be known that this is not just an innocent mistake, but a willful disregard for what God wants. So we already have a little definition going on. Sin is an act, any thought, desire, word, or deed, or its absence, that willfully disregards what God wants. So where do we find what God wants, what God is pleased by? We find that in his law, his law. Now, I need to say something about this, too. I mean, speaking like words from the Bible these days, it's like you have to decode this stuff because our culture has become so confused. Uh, Today, okay, because of our neo-romantic, late modern secular culture, we often pit law against love. Law is duty, but love is the free spirit acting out of pure passion. And these two are against each other. But I want to show you two boys, and I want you to guess which one lives by law and which one has an absence of law. Okay? All right. So which one has law in their life? Well, the one that is on your right, okay, has certain laws in their life, okay? I'm guessing that one of the laws in that boy's life is you have to comb your hair. You have, to, you have to bathe, you have to make sure you're dressed for school, you have to go to school, you have to have a backpack. There's probably lots of laws operating in that boy's life. The boy on the other side is a kid that can do whatever he wants because he has nobody to guide him, to counsel him, to help him. He is living a, lo- a lawless life. And so he can't flourish and grow. All relationships, by the way, run on law. They run on a spoken or unspoken set of expectations based on the desires of the parties that are in the relationship. If you have any doubt about that, just decide to leave the toilet seat up. (laughs) If you have any doubt about that, just come over to somebody's house, all right, and just go into their bedroom and just start going through their clothing, you know, their underwear drawer. Like, you're going to realize there is a set of laws 
that makes that relationship work. And that is how all relationships work. Law is not the opposite of a loving relationship. Law facilitates a loving relationship. All relationships, including our relationship with God, runs on law. And when you look at the story of the Bible, this amazing story of Israel, right? Israel's rescued. They're pulled out of slavery. God brings them through the Red Sea. They're baptized. He makes them, you know, his own. He, he pours out his grace on them in such a dramatic and powerful way, and he sends them on their way to the promised land. And it's then, as the good father and gracious rescuer, that he gives his law. It's an act of grace. It's a gift. David knew this. If you have any doubt, read Psalm 119. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Or look at the very beginning of Psalm, Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does prospers. So the Bible begins with this story amazing story of two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the first tree, they are commanded to eat, the tree of life. They're to eat, commanded to eat all of the trees. And what is the tree of life? The tree of life is a tree that when you consume it, you actually get God's pulsating life such that you might have eternal life. But the second tree, God says, he gives a command not to eat it. It will kill them. So what is God doing? What is the story here? God was giving them an opportunity, on one hand, you give an opportunity, God's letting his wishes be known, for them to be deferential to what God wants, which is, by the way, how you love somebody, okay? That's what Valentine's Day is all about, except for, uh, you know, I don't know. Do women really like candies that much? The flowers, probably. Anyway, maybe, chocolate. But what else is God doing? It was not just any tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, by taking of this tree, the couple was saying, we are the final arbiters of what good and evil is. We disregard what you say, God. We define right and wrong. Thanks, but no thanks for being God. We are in charge here. Now, me and my wife just finished Breaking Bad. It was... I mean, I've, I saw some of it before, but I'm like, Kenya, we need to do this. And uh, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, it's a television series about Walter White. There he is. Look at him, looking mean. He's an underpaid high school chemistry teacher struggling with the recent diagnosis of stage three lung cancer, and he turns to a life of crime. He turns to cooking meth, okay, and distributing it, too. Eventually becomes a kingpin. And he does this, he justifies it by saying, I'm doing this for the family, one of the most astounding scenes is where Walt is waiting to get tested uh, for his cancer alongside another stranger who's there in the waiting room, and they have this conversation. And the stranger says to Walt, getting cancer has been the biggest wake-up call of my life. Letting go, giving up control. Man plans, but God laughs. To which Walter White says, that is BS and just a little warning, he doesn't say BS, he says the real thing. Never give up control. 
Live life on your own terms. Someday I'm going to hear bad news, but until then, who's in charge? Me. That's how I live my life. This is exactly what John means when he says sin is lawlessness. It's to say to God, I'm in charge. Thanks for the offer to be God, but no thanks. I'm going to call the shots. When push comes to shove, at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I want to do with a willful disregard for what you want. But then John does something else, and it's very cool. I don't know if cool is the right word, but it's really quite interesting. He doesn't just say that anyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Then he adds this, sin is lawlessness. Hamarti astin anomia. And all the commentators agree that John here is driving beyond just simply the practice of sin to say that if you practice sin, not only are you breaking the law, but something starts happening that starts transforming who you are. See, he moves from a statement about how sin has this power, uh, the sin is breaking law, to sin has this chronic power. I'm butchering that. That sin is a chronic power. You know, all of us sin. Every single one of us sins, okay? We already covered this last time I preached on sin. First John 8, uh, 1, 8 and 10 says that sin bedevils everyone, but that we all can be forgiven if we repent. First John 1, 9, 2, 1. Uh, but if we don't repent of our sin, we are setting ourselves on the progress to become the level of anomia, a disposition that corrupts us. So John is speaking here of an inner psychology. Sin is lawlessness is talking about an inner psychology that develops on our inner character, a disposition where if we continue practicing sin, that law-breaking moves inside of us, and there's something broken about us. The old saying is that when we break God's law, it breaks us. And there's no better book that really goes into this psychology of, uh, I will call it, psychology of lawlessness, this way in which sin moves inside of you. I mean, you can watch the Breaking Bad series, but you can also read C.S. Lewis's little book, The Great Divorce. Because in this book, Lewis uh, gives us all these little vignettes of people who actually have had, have progressed to this level of anomia, okay? They have actually had this lawlessness enter into them. Uh, One of the characters is this person with this habitual need to grumble. Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. And and Lewis is like, well, that's not so bad. This person grumbles all the time. And and then uh, Lewis's mentor says um, in the the book that, yeah, we we can be a grumbler, but if we grumble all the time, if we practice that grumbling day in and day out, at some point we are no longer a grumbler, but merely a grumble. In other words, our humanity disappears and that thing starts taking precedent. And you can see this. You see this in in the story of Walter White. You know, at the end of his life, he finally acknowledges, because he keeps saying to his wife, I'm doing this for the family, I'm doing this for the family. And at the end, the very last words he speaks is, all the things that I did, I did it for me. Because I liked it. Because I was good at it. Because it made me feel alive. The practice of sin creates anomia, which ultimately means that we have a certain fixation on ourself, an inordinate attention on ourself, our preferences, what makes us feel alive, and it becomes this kind of thing that regardless of the consequences, we want it. It is what 
St. Augustine called homo incuritus in se, which means a turning inward upon the self, that we turn inward upon ourself within ourself. We close ourself off from the world. Augustine calls this also living by the rule of self. It's to live as if those outside of us are not really there. Sin is lawlessness because it doesn't recognize the existence of those outside of us, of God. It is a kind of closing in, and therefore we ourselves become anomia. And when you hear the word anomia, I hope you're hearing anomaly because we become an anomaly of what God actually created us to be. So sin is lawlessness. But then he goes on and he, uh, and he says uh, that sin originates with the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, inevitably, when you bring up the devil, there's going to be you know, another word that's fallen in hard times. There's going to be somebody who goes, whoa, 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 that's a bridge too far. You know, you're going to bring up that boogeyman concocted in the Middle Ages. I want to say something here uh, as somebody that has actually studied the boogeyman concocted in the Middle Ages. Um, if you actually pay attention to what they're representing, it is not so easy to dismiss. You know, here's some images from the Middle Ages. And one thing you'll notice is Satan has three heads. Why does he have three heads? Well, three is the number of perfection. It means completeness. This is complete evil. It represents a, a certain kind of completion or perfection of evil. Satan is typically chewing on somebody, some sinner. Maybe it's Cassius or Judas or Brutus or whoever. And this means that, that Satan is a force that consumes those brought into his power. Satan is frozen in ice, which symbolizes hate, the opposite of warmth and love. And, at the, and, and Satan is at the center of the world because evil draws itself in to a narcissistic implosion. Dante, one of the key inventors of this image of Satan that we have, who also invented the Italian language, I might add, kind of the Shakespeare of Italian language, was an incredibly brilliant man. His understanding of philosophy of his age was incredible, and he knew he was writing metaphorically. He didn't know what the artists were going to do with it, but he knew he was writing metaphorically, but he also knew that he was describing something that was a reality. And how did he know it was a reality? Well, he took the Bible at its word. See, the Bible unavoidably teaches there is such a thing as personal, supernatural evil. It's personal in that it's an evil that operates more like agent causation than state-to-state -state causation. State-to-state -state causation is what you have in science, where you can examine something, you can comprehend it, it moves from one state to the next. But one of the hardest things to understand is an agent, a person. It's hard to even understand our own motivations or what we're going to do next. You know, so what the Bible's telling us is it's, this is an evil you can't pin down. And it's supernatural in that it's an evil to be on our capacity to control, to quantify, to actually put within some kind of um, place where we can be in charge. And I have to admit, it always amazes me in an age where Foucault's panopticon, which I don't know if you've ever read Foucault, but Foucault, we're living in his age where people are extremely aware of the power of systemic forces to control individuals and strip them of their ability to see what they're doing. That in this age, we have given up on the devil. Like, really? That's just so weird to me. So John tells us, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And what is John saying? John is saying something very disturbing. He's saying that when we sin, 
we actually imitate the devil. This dark force that is bigger, stronger, this evil that seeks to control. And then he says, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So John is telling us that the characteristic work of the devil is to sin. He's done it from the beginning. He's the originator of the entire idea. We might think sin is our idea. Mm -mm. Somebody's already written the script. Now, my amazingly beautiful wife, who takes my breath away, is also the director of HR. You didn't know I've been talking about this, but I think it's okay. She, you know, when, you, when you're married to somebody, you learn all about their job, right? So my wife, she's the director of HR for a large company, which means she has to take care of situations where people do things they shouldn't have done. And, you know, there's typically video cameras because all the places where people work, there's video cameras. So we've been watching these videos of people. Do, and one thing that struck me is that people are doing the same stupid thing. And every time they do it, they think, I'm so original. It's like, no, you're not. We already watched a video of this in the other place. Over and over and over. It's like these people are lemmings, you know, fulfilling a script. And this is what John is saying. John is saying there is a script and there is an evil author, even though we think we are the originators of this. It's very disturbing. And, 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 you know, what John is doing here, and as I thought about this text, I realized John is trying to get us to see how egregious sin is. He's trying to develop an affect in us that has a deep problem, a deep troubling. If you are troubled by those pictures of the devil, that's the right idea. You need to be troubled. I need to be troubled. We need to see sin as egregious. And why is sin egregious? Why is it egregious? Well, there's lots of things. I mean, he just told us that when we sin, we actually look a lot like the devil. This is egregious. And of course, um, there's lots of things. You know, there's an entire book on how egregious sin is. It's called The Mischief of Sin. The Mischief of Sin by, uh, mischief by the word, that's another word that kind of lost its sway. But mischief uh, means that sin is catastrophic and egregious. And uh, I want to quote from it. I love this uh, kind of like catalog. Sin turns the body into a hospital. It causes fevers and ulcers and cancers. Sin buries the name, melts the estate, pulls away near relations like limbs from our body. Sin destroys our relationships. Sin is the Trojan horse out of which a whole troop of affliction comes. Sin drowned the old world, burnt Sodom, made Zion sit in Babylon. Sin shuts up God's affections. Israel sinned and did not repent, and God killed and did not pity. Sin is the great humbler. Did not David's sin bring him low? Sin changed crowns into chains. Sin turned great King Nebuchadnezzar into an animal. Sin is like the Egyptian reed, too feeble to support, but sharp enough to wound. Sin not only brings us low, it makes us suffer bitter, bitterly. Sin sinks teeth into our suffering, makes our pain heavier and our conscience guilty. Sin brings a person low, a family low, a nation low. Among the many warnings in, in, of sin is Deuteronomy 28, 43, you shall sink lower and lower. Then reading on, we find the warning held true, they were brought low for their iniquity. Man, you want to have like, develop a deep, kind of like, ah, absolute repulsion towards sin? Thomas, uh, uh, Thomas uh, Watson's book, The Mischief of Sin. So what does John do though? In order to instill a deep sense of the grievous nature of sin, he doesn't talk about Babylon or Bathsheba. What he does is he turns his attention to something that is even more disturbing than this catalog. This is what he says. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. And then the parallel, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the works of the devil. This is one of the most troubling things. John is creating cognitive dissonance here. He's saying when we sin, we go about undoing the work of Jesus. Jesus came to take away sins. So why are we multiplying them? You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins on the cross that we might die to sin and live to God. And Dorothy Sayers reminds us, forgiveness does not wipe away the consequence of sin. The consequence are always borne by somebody. Christ bears our sins. And when we see the pain and suffering of Christ who went through what he went through for our sins, why would we desire to continue to add to that suffering? I love this hymn that we sing. Who was the guilty who brought this upon you? Alas, my treason, Jesus, that has undone you. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I who denied you, I crucified you. This is the right spirit that John is trying to get. But then even more disturbing in verse 8, when we sin, we side with the devil. You know, if we give into sin, we actually are undoing what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. John Stott concludes from these two verses, if the first step to holiness is to recognize the sinfulness of sin as lawlessness, the second step is to recognize that it's completely incompatible with why Christ came. And oftentimes during communion, sometimes during communion where we have time to examine ourselves, I like to think about that. It's important for us to develop a sense of like, Lord, why am I doing this? You know, um, and, and you paid for this, and yet I'm doing this. That should create that right kind of uh, sense of how egregious sin is. Finally, John talks about what sin reveals. What sin reveals. He concludes with two observations about those who give themselves over to the practice of sinning. And by the way, that's what we're talking about here, the practice of sinning, not just a sin. We all sin. We all are going to struggle with sin until we die. Listen to the first sermon, Okay. But John is talking about people that willfully say, forget it. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. The Walter White kind of syndrome. I'm just going to do this. I don't care. And John has two conclusions. First, if we habitually, willfully engage in patterns of sin, it will reveal our true spiritual condition. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What is John saying here? John is saying that if you see somebody that has a habitual, constant life of engaging in sin, you can be sure that that person does not have the Holy Spirit working in their life. And it's pretty simple. You know, if you're out camping and you're sitting there by a stream, and you see a fish floating with the stream belly up, not, even, not working against the stream, not doing anything, you can be pretty, pretty sure that is a dead fish. And if you see somebody who's just floating with wherever the culture is going, with whatever's happening around them, just floating along with uh, what's happening, regardless of what God's desires expressly state, we can be sure that that person is spiritually dead. So, uh, John says that it reveals our spiritual condition, and then he says that it also uh, reveals our true identity. Oh, I have this awesome quote by J.C. Ryle. Let's talk about true Christianity. There is a vast quantity of people who call themselves Christians, but you never see any fight in the religion. Oh, spiritual strife, exertion, conflicts, of spiritual strife, exertion, conflict, self-denial, watching and waiting. They know literally nothing at all, 
Such Christianity may satisfy people, but it is certainly not the Christianity. It's certainly not the Christianity of the Bible, nor the religion Jesus founded, nor that his apostles preached, for true Christianity is a fight. A live fish fights against the stream. And to be a Christian means that if you're going to please God, you are going to stand out as somebody who is going to fight. You're going to fight sin. It's part of the Christian calling. And then John ends with this other thing that sin reveals. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And then he says, by this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John here ends saying that when we sin, uh, if, we have a, if we have a practice of sin, um, then we can be sure <laughs> that we're learning about our identity. I mean, Jesus basically summarized, summarized it when he says, you know a tree by its fruit. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. So John is telling us something that is pretty disturbing in a way, in our age of unmitigated humanism, where human beings are assumed to be the masters of their fate, and human beings are consumed, you know, they're the greatest thing in the universe. John is saying that we're actually in a universe where there is a great antithesis working itself out in a battle between good and evil. A battle between the source of beauty and goodness and that which is evil and destructive. And we are going to have to line up with one of those causes. I know we don't like that. We don't like the idea. We like to have this idea like, oh, I can just choose my own path. And John is saying no. That actually we have to choose which direction we're going to go. And every day we have that before us. Either God, choosing God, to our future hope where we will become dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating with energy and joy and wisdom, or the evil one, and then turn in on ourselves, becoming users and narcissists and frozen in a loveless life. And so at this point in the sermon, the whole point that John is preaching here is he's trying to say, which way are you going to go? And every time sin brings its ugly face into our life and we're, we're tempted John is saying, do you see the choice before you? Do you recognize the forces that are in play? Do you recognize that if you give yourself to this, you will go down a road in which you will slowly diminish your humanity until you will no longer flourish? You'll be a lot like that street kid. And you might be free to do what you want, but you will not flourish. So, I'm hoping that all of us at some point in the sermon has thought about things we're wrestling against because we're all wrestling with something. Have we been conforming to the culture around us? Have we been conniving and hiding things that are wrong? Have we been minimalizing? Are we quick to call out others but ignoring our own issues? Have we been avoiding responsibilities have we been cocooning where we're stuffing ourselves into our own world, living with resentment, becoming a grumbler, maybe giving ourselves, giving into something that is controlling our life, like an addiction, or in the process of that? John says, we have one and only one solution. We have to abide in Christ. So how do we escape sin? We have to see sin for what it is, in all of its ugliness. Not play with it, not minimize it, but take it serious.
Romans 12, 9 says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And this means develop God's way of seeing things. Develop God's affections. Remember the psalmist, I love your law. I love your law. I want to follow it. Abhor what is evil. And John tells us you can't lean into Christ and at the same time lean into sin. You can't worship Christ and see him in his glory and be drawn to the ugly things that attract us. There's no way that we can come here and we can actually see all that Christ did for our sins and then engage in sin. There's a story of a man that every time he was cheating on his wife and every time his lover came over, he had to turn down the pictures in his house that had his wife. What we do here on Sunday morning when we worship and we once again are aware that we are walking with the, with the living, resurrected Jesus is we are once again reminding ourselves of who he is, what he's done, what he came to destroy, of his grace and his mercy that is poured out and his grace that forgives all our sin, his grace that is bigger than our sin. And when we see that grace, we know that we can confess it freely and that he gladly receives us. But there's one more thing I want to say. John is letting us know that there is no other way There's no escape from sin except for by Christ's help. John says that his seed needs to abide in us. What does that mean? That Christ needs to enter into our lives. Otherwise, we have no other recourse. Without his power, without his grace, without his work in our lives, we will be dominated by the power of sin. It is a force that seeks to take us down. And so I want to ask this morning, Is there something in your life that you know will best you? There's something in your life that you know you're tempted to give into. Turn to Christ. He has the power and the grace to forgive you and to give us the strength in order to live lives of walking and abiding, of pleasing our Heavenly Father. And one day, we know we will shine like lights. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very sobering message. It's a call to look at our lives. And Lord, we don't want to do that out of fear, but because of what you have done, we can do that knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Lord, that you desire for us to be healthy and to be alive and, Lord, experience life to its fullness. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us, Lord, a great desire to obey you and to honor you, that we listen carefully to what you want, not because, uh, Lord, we want to make sure that we get a pat on the back, but because, Lord, we know that your desires are for our health and our life. We thank you for Jesus, who who has vowed to walk with us. And now as we continue on for the rest of our day, may we abide in him. It's in his name we pray. 